we got two more weeks left of this one flesh um, sermon series, and and I'm not even done. Like I, I, I'm going to have to be done, but uh, I'm going to talk today about um, God's design for the women. And I don't know that I've ever put more deodorant on in my life than today. <laughs> uh, so I think I'm good. I doubled up again when I was back there, so I, I, should, be, I should be fine. Uh, but then next week, uh, I know we were supposed to have the sex talk, but I really just feel in my heart, we just need to talk about how to resolve marital conflict. I think if you can resolve marital conflict, the rest of the stuff will take care of itself. I'll probably come back to that sermon at some point. Uh, in my life, but not, but not next week. So can I, can I start with a quick poll really fast? If, if you're a person that wants to know how, not what, not why, but how. Are you a how person? Raise your hand. If you're a how person, I don't care what or why, I want to know how that's going to be done. Raise your hand. Be proud if you're a how now. Okay. All right, put your hand down. Now, if you're a, a person that says, I got to know what, the how, whatever, the why, whatever, but I need to know what, what are we doing, what are we talking about, what is required of me, I need to know what, what is, who is the what's out there, who are the what's, the what's, okay, now I'm looking for my tribe, my tribe is the why, I could care less about the how or the what, I got to know why I'm doing what I'm doing, where's my why's at, where's my why, 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 you know, you know your mom and dad almost hated you, you know, why, Mom, why? Why? Because I said so, boy. I said so. But mom, why? I only asked that a few times. I'm a why. And for me, the why determines the what. The what determines the how. And that's uh, kind of Scott Brandon's flow of logic. So whenever I'm preaching, I have to think about you how people and you what people because I just feel like if I give you the why, you'll figure out the rest. That's, what, that's how my mind thinks. And I know that's not true because my mind thinks right thinking, that is um, uh, orthodoxy, leads to right living, which is orthopraxy. So, so if you're thinking right, you should be doing right. And that's true most times. So when I think about husbands and wives and the relationship they have, I wholeheartedly believe that if I can help you to think right, then you will do right. I don't know how someone could know what to do and know how to do and not know why to do it. But we are different, and God has made us all diverse. So today we're going to talk about all three, the whys, the hows, and the whats. And so I want to just talk about it in this role concerning the role of the wife is why did he design it that way? Why did he do that? And then what does he require? What's the what, Lord? What's the what? And then last is how does his design function? And so I, I hope today I'm going to uh, try to roll slow today. Hang with me. It's going to be a bit. I got a lot of teaching to do, and I've actually shortened it quite a bit. Um, so let's go with me. Father in heaven, you know my words absolutely do not matter. I pray your Holy Spirit will do far more than I can ask, think, or imagine. According to your spirit, God, your spirit is able. And God, what we need, Father, is to be right with you. We need to be aligned with you. We need to think rightly with your word, and we need to do rightly according to your word. And I pray today that you would allow us to be taught 
by the only teacher that there is, and that is the Holy Spirit. And so would you make us your pupils today? Would you make us your students, your disciples, that we might learn and that we might do and that our lights might shine bright in this world and glorify our Father who is in heaven? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So why is a question of origins? For us to ask why is to look at the original cause recorded in Scripture. So flip back to the book of Genesis 2.18 with me. What we find is this, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Notice this is the first reference of Eve in regards to a relationship to Adam. And the Bible, the word uses here to designate who she is in terms of her wifehood is helper. And so God's reasoning to create Eve was because it was, it was not good for man to be alone. That's why he said that. It was very simple. His argument's very clear. At this moment in time, here's what we know. We know three, three things about Adam. And, and Adam, he works in the garden. We talked about that, right? Uh, he obeys the command of God concerning the tree. And he names the animals. That's what, that's what we know about him right now. And so of all the things that Adam is involved with, Here's what the Bible is not saying about his helper. He is not saying it is not good for the man to work the garden alone. He did not say that. He did not say it is not good for the man to keep my commandment alone. Neither did he say that. Nor did he say it is not good for the man to make decisions alone. I think those things are paramount because ladies would, would go, yeah, but he didn't do it that good. You know, if, if she had been there... It had been better. They had actually had real names instead of hippopotamus. What kind of name is that, you know? And so he plainly said this. It is not good for man to be alone. That is, is or remain alone. He's dealing with loneliness here. But he also shows us a context here that we've, uh, in terms of a contrast, that we see looking at the previous chapter in chapter 2, or chapter 1, I'm sorry. And he says the issue here is that it's not good, which everything that we've seen in Scripture so far is good, 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 good. But the fact that, that Adam is not good ought to really make us pay attention to some things. Because the first six times in the Bible that God uses uh, the word good is in regards to completion. He made this, he completed it, it functioned well, and he said that was good. The Lord saw something good because he saw it was complete and fully functional. Can I say that again? He saw it was complete and fully functional. And each time the Lord saw it was good, the fact that God saw, he measured, he analyzed, he didn't think, he didn't know, he saw. And each time it was good was because it reflected or revealed an attribute of God. His wisdom, his might, his power, his authority. And each time it was good, it produced something for God. There was light and there were seas and there was earth and, and there was uh, sky and plants. And each time it was good, it obeyed God. It shined. It held together. It produced vegetation. It stayed in place. It bore fruit. And so what we see is simply that it's reflecting, it's producing, or it's obeying something. Man is the only thing that is not good, and therefore he is lacking in the ability to reflect, produce, and obey, and this is not good. 
for all of creation up to this point is complete in its function except man. So, in steps the wife. Because she walked in and said, it's not good. We got things to fix. But notice this. She literally stepped in. She didn't step under, nor did she step over. She stepped in. He, she came near. She came next to him. And so how does the helper, how does the wife move her husband as Eve moved Adam from not good to good? The wife helps him reflect and reveal God. Now, when I realized and I wrote this statement down, the first, thought, the first thought I had to my mind was, yeah, because he's practicing forgiveness. That's what he's doing right here. He's reflecting God because he's practicing forgiveness. You know what, guys? I know I'm solo on this journey today. It's okay. All the men, they're just like, you know, I dare you to nudge your wife today. I dare you to nudge your wife today. I know you are just like, it's been good to know you, Pastor Scott. Uh, the wife helps him reflect and reveal God. There's no sin in the world. And so everything that Adam is doing, he is not needing someone to fix him. He is needing someone to complete him so that he might reflect the good things of God. That is love. That is an unconditional love. That is leadership. And in fact, all of those things that he is looking at, marriage is a physical model of the triune nature of God. We talked about that last year when we talked about the Ten Commandments. Is that when we look at marriage, marriage is helping us reflect not only is it the relationship between Christ and the church, but also the makeup and the order of the triune nature of God. Second thing is the wife helps him produce something for God. Adam's command was to be fruitful and multiply. And then the third thing was this, that wife, the wife helps him obey God. Not only in fulfilling the commandment of children, but in all things. So without Eve, Adam was incapable of reflecting the quality, the character, or the goodness of God. He was not able to produce the image of God. And he was not able to fulfill the word of God. Can I tell you, husbands need wives who help reflect the qualities of God, that is, his agape love, his loyalty, his leadership. They also need wives to help produce the image of God. We're not just in it to bless us with children. We need you to help us raise sons and daughters who will inherit the kingdom. We don't just need offspring. We need children of the Most High. We also need wives to help us fulfill the word of God. God has given men, wives, the abilities, the talents, the resources, the intuition, and the other qualities that we need for completion so that we might fulfill our mission in life. And that fulfilling of our mission in life is making sure that first we must sacrifice everything as ourselves, as husbands, to make sure she can fulfill her submission in life. And in, and in response, it helps us fall out or walk out our mission in life. And so we understand more as to why God designed the role of the wife. What now does he require of the woman in marriage? Ephesians 5, 22-24 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body as himself his Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything, everything to their husbands. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, 
submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Likewise, um, sorry, 1 Peter 3, 1, 5 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That's a huge statement. We'll come back to that later. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Ephesians 5.33 says this, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects you. So what does the Lord require of you, ladies? He requires submission and respect. But before we get to respect, let me deal with submission. I find it odd that throughout Scripture, uh, without Scripture being so specific, the generality of the relationship between, between man and woman in a relationship is always submission. And I begin to ask myself, Lord, why? You guys know that when I partake of something, I always have to ask myself, Lord, how can I put myself in this situation? This is a difficult situation for me to put myself into because I'm not a wife, but I do know that I have three girls. And so I ask the Lord, Father, I need you to help me fully understand these concepts. Why do you want my girls to submit to their husbands, which I am far superior to. <laughs> far, far superior to. <laughs> it, as I climbed down off my throne, I, uh, I heard the Lord simply say, because your girls, Scott, were born with a desire, a temptation to exhibit control influence, and power over their husband. They were born with that. Didn't say they were going to, just said that they were born with a desire and a temptation, just like every man in here has born with a desire and a temptation. Women also are born with the same desire and temptation. And I want to give you two scriptural concepts that support this statement because that's no light concept. That's no easy teaching. I just can't close the the word of today and say, now fix that. Because I have to ask myself, Lord, if it's true, then show me. And so I want to take you to first to the chastisement of Eve. Why does this exist? Why is this true? If we look at Genesis 3.16, what we see is the pronouncement of judgment on Eve um, that God gave her. And we see right here, 3.16 says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. And then he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And then, and then what we see here is simply this. There's two pronouncements that he's made. Now, I know some translations say that your desire shall be towards your husband. And I will clarify that in just a second. Don't, listen, God's judgment was that, wasn't that you would love your, your husband. <laughs> there was some other things he was dealing with. And so the first thing that he gave to Adam was something she didn't want. Is that he gave her child, he gave her pain in childbirth. It was God's desire that Eve be painless in her childbirth and, and as she multiplied the population of the earth. But, but that did not happen because of her fall. And the second thing he did was he did not allow her desire for control to be fulfilled. When Eve took of the fruit of the tree, she exhibited control in something she had no right to. Adam did as well, but she was deceived in it. That's what we're talking about. The only thing Eve didn't have by not eating of the fruit was the knowledge of good and evil. 
which was the becoming like God. And so what we see in Genesis 3.22, the Lord even says that. It says, now that she's reached out her hand, he says, behold, the man has become like us or like one of us in knowing good and evil. And so I would, I would dare say that Eve stretched her hand out for what other reason? She had fruit. She had good-looking fruit. She had everything she needed. The only thing that the tree of knowledge of good and evil offered was godhood, likeness of God, knowledge of good and evil. And God affirms that. And so perhaps it wasn't about the food, but the temptation to become like God and to control her own destiny made her own decision. And we'll never know. You know, exactly, that's exactly what it is. But I would say, as we look at her life, we realize by the pronouncement that God made upon her life that sin had caused her to act in such a way, or I would say her desire had caused her to act in such a way that that she was now to be ruled over by her husband. And we see this same phrase in a different context, both in the Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. This is the story of Cain and Abel. You know it well. And this is before Cain kills Abel. And God recognizes the temptation in Cain's heart. And he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Seem familiar? In fact, in the Hebrew, it's the same phrase. Same phrase. And so the word contrary here in the Hebrew means to control through influence or have power over. So sin is seeking an opportunity to control through influence, which is manipulation, or have power over Cain, which is intimidation, through temptation or desire in Cain's life. But Cain must rule over it as a response to it. The Hebrew phrase is almost exactly the same as I said, but more importantly, the person who's saying it is exactly the same The same God that spoke it in 316 is the same God that's saying it in 4-7. And so just like Cain was to rule over the desire of sin seeking to influence Cain, um, Cain by its controlling him, so too was Adam to rule over Eve, who through desire and temptation would seek to control him by her influence. And so the question is, is, is this true? How do we know that? It's a hard It's a hard concept to sit there and think, Father, how was I born to desire to control my husband, to to manipulate him with my influence in ways that I know? And sometimes, you know, not all women are built the same way. Some women come powerfully. Some women, I'm just going to be clear and blunt because I'm just going to say some things that probably need to be said by some men. Sometimes the men get tired of the nagging. And we know the nagging is nothing more than you trying to make your environment stable and reassured. And sometimes the suggestions and sometimes the withdrawal, the cold shoulders, and all of those things I know is the intent. It's like Eve. The intent is to secure and stabilize your environment. But you have to know that in that moment, what we see really is a response for a man who is a godly man is to rule over that. And this is what we see pronounced in Scripture. And that is a hard thing for a man to receive and say, well, what I see in my wife is a need for me to rule over her. Because no man's heart is like that. No man, in fact, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about, in verse, uh, chapter 7, he says, he says, if a man is 
can be so distracted by worldly things. And he classifies worldly things as loving his wife and pleasing his wife. And he says the same thing for women. He says that women can be so distracted by worldly things. What worldly things? By pleasing their, their husband. And so this is a godly relationship that they both seek to please each other. But even in that, we have miscommunication, we have lack of clarity, and we have a lack of understanding. And those things sometimes cause women and cause men to resort to ways that they operate outside their marriage towards people they don't truly love and will die for. And we bring those things into the marriage because we've had evidence of their proof and their ability outside the marriage. And we think this might help here too because after all I love this person and I really want what the best is and so I'll kind of be okay with doing whatever it takes so long as I get the best thing but Eve wanted the best thing too so we have to be clear as to our motive and so is this principle true because I don't mean to paint women wicked at all I, I dare not I know better I know better. If anybody's been impacted by the women in, their, in his life, it's, it's me. Uh, not having any male role models. I, I, I had a, a phenomenal grandmother, and I had a phenomenal mother, and, 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 and I didn't have those other male roles. I know the power of women in the church, but can I tell you, I also know the power of men in the church. Statistics say that 90% of the household goes to church when the man goes to church. Statistics say that, that when a man goes to church regularly, that his, wife, or his children have a better religious formation in their adult years, not just in their early years. There isn't an impact of a man and a woman. We must understand those things that require our attention. And so if this is true, do women have strong desires and temptations to exhibit influence and power and control. And, and those desires, I would say, if they're true, they must be seen in Scripture elsewhere also. And so I did a, a poll, and I found 20 of the most famous women I know in Scripture. And I looked at them to see um, the ones who are portrayed in a negative light. And as I looked through these 20 women, I realized they all had a commonality. And that is they all exhibit control in some way or another. And so let me give you 10 this morning. Eve is often portrayed as having a desire for control on her own destiny by disobeying God's command not to eat from the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. Jezebel exercised control over her husband and kingdom of Israel, promoting the worship of false gods and persecuting God's prophets. Delilah used her beauty and charm to manipulate and control Samson, ultimately betraying him to his enemies. Herodias exercised control over her husband, Herod the Great, by persuading him to order the execution of John the Baptist. Potiphar's wife attempted to exercise control over Joseph by seducing him and then falsely accusing him of rape when, she re when he rejected her advances. Atalia exercised control over the kingdom of Judah, seizing power after her husband's death and ordering the execution of members of the royal family. Gomer, Gomer's unfaithfulness, which was uh, um, a symbol of Israel's unfaithfulness, her unfaithfulness in her marriage to Jose is seen as an attempt to exert control over her own life rather than submitting to God and her husband 
which we also saw in Israel's life for the current day. Um, and Ananias' wife, Sapphira, attempted to control her reputation and status with the early Christian church by lying about her financial contributions. Miriam, which was Moses' uh, sister, attempted to control her brother Moses' leadership and authority, which um, cost her her health for a period of time until Moses interceded for her. And Tamar used deception and seduction to control the outcome of her situation, ultimately bearing a son with her father-in-law, Judah. That's ten. I got ten more I could go, but you get the point. Every time I find the more prominent, the most prominent, and even the more, those who are not prominent, when I find women in the Bible who are always portrayed in the negative light, what we see is a desire, what we see is a temptation for her to control. Why? Because I think she seeks to stabilize and cause her environment to be safe. She wants to guarantee her future. And so as I look back to each woman, I, I realized they all had some deceptions that they bought into as Eve was deceived. And so here's my question to you women today. For you to think on, I'll, I'll let you take this home and think on it. Does godly submission liberate you from worldly deception? Does godly submission liberate you from worldly deception? In other words, can I avoid the deception that the world offers me in my marriage by submitting as God has desired me to? And so we've talked about why, why God has designed the, the role of the woman, and he's, he's also talked about how, um, what he requires of us. Now I want to talk about um, his desire for the woman in marriage and this is simple because men are so simple. Um, if it wasn't for a mixed company, uh, I, would, I would say some things that would make it realize how simple it is. But just know it is completely simple this morning. But to put it in a more functional way, your man needs respect. He just needs respect. Can I be honest with you? No man in this room really cares if the other man loves him, but you better respect me. I don't love Hitler, but I can respect him. You have to respect all men for all things when they exhibit some type of ability. It doesn't mean I have to agree with that, but I can respect that because inside each man is a deep crave and desire to be respected. In all forms that the wife loves her husband, he honestly is truly desiring respect. Why is that so? Look at Ephesians 5.33. The command here is, however, let each one of you love his wife. That is an unconditional agape love. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, we do see the fact that this love is an agape, unconditional love. And we understand when we talked to the guys last time that guys, our job is to give the wife what she needs most when she deserves it the least at great personal cost. But we also see that she ought to respect her husband. How do we know that that's supposed to be unconditional? Are you telling me, Pastor Scott, I'm supposed to respect my husband whether he deserves it or not? Yes. Because that's what you expect in terms of love, that he love you when you don't deserve to be loved. How could he truly love you if he doesn't love you unconditionally? 
you would have to look like you were 21 your whole life. You would have to bring six figures home all the time. You would have to be permissible in all his requests all the time for you to have something that he would approve that you deserve his love. And that's not the truth. He loves you whether you deserve it or not. Or he should. And it should come at great personal cost. And so here we're at the same bypass in the road, the same cross section that you are to respect him. You see how difficult that sounds? Regardless whether he deserves it or not, you're to respect him at great personal cost. That's how it feels to us men to love you, which is not something we're really good at anyway. But we know that if we will submit to God, we must love you. And if you will submit to us or submit to God, you must respect us. Because that is the way and the desire and the design that God has made it. In the end, you're not rebelling against your spouse, husband or wife. You're rebelling against the statutes of the Lord. And the blessing that comes with those statutes. And the provision that comes with those statutes. I realize that these things are not always politically correct. I remind myself that Paul once told the people during this day... When, when the, the man only saw his desires outside the home, when he told everyone, listen up, everybody, you're supposed to treat your wife as your equal, they thought he was crazy, he was radical, he was a progressive, he was a liberal. How dare you say things like that? But when he said, and submit to your husband, nobody, nobody shook a fist at that. But now we're on the other side of the spectrum, and we can say that they are equal all day long. And that's okay with society, but if we ask someone to submit, if we ask a wife to submit, now there's problems. But there's only problems when someone doesn't understand their relationship to the Lord. I have no problem loving Julie unconditionally. Not at all. You know why? Because I've submitted to God. I understand what that means, and I understand what he requires. And so what might be difficult outside of a relationship with God is very doable inside of a relationship with God because it is he in me and through me that is loving my wife in a capacity I do not have. And it's the same, ladies, that whatever capacity you do not have in respecting your man is because you weren't supposed to have that total capacity Christ longs to live in you and love your husband and respect your husband through you. And he has chose you to do that through. And so let me give you some, let me, let me go back first real quick and, and, and cover this unconditional aspect. First Peter 3, 1 through 2 says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, that's so powerful of a principle that even if your own husband does not obey the word, the Greek breaks it down like this, that he may be gained without a sermon or a message by the respectful way of life is, is what it means literally in the Greek. That he might be gained for heaven without a message from God. By your respectful way of life. Do you understand the power of your actions is immeasurable? Immeasurable. The power of your words is immeasurable. There is this thing called the respect test. Uh, I've read this book several times. Some of you are reading it right now. 
love and respect. Dr. Emerson, he says, he says, if you want to know how meaningful um, to your husband your respect is to him, walk up to him and say, you know, I was thinking about you today and all the things, of, uh, all the things that I respect you for. And I just want you to say, I want to say thank you. And walk away. And see how far he gets before he says, wait, 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 come on. Come back here. You can't say that and walk away. I got to know. I got to know. Because to be honest with you, you provide an affirmation to our identity that we are constantly searching for. Constantly searching for. Men, we put on the alpha chest as best as we can, but at the end of the day, if our wife does not think that we are anything, then we feel like we are nothing. Women, your ability to affirm in your husband, I respect you because those words are so immensely powerful. And I would encourage you that you find time in prayer and say, Lord, don't Show me the things that are superficial, but show me the things that my husband struggles with. Show me his deep need and give me the words to speak to him, those things that I agree and are sincere about. I need to speak to the depth of who he is, but I need to say it sincerely. Men value your love, women, but they need your respect. And so let me give you six things uh, the acronym that I pull from this book, you can go back and research it further, but these things are the best treatments, I guess, that I've ever seen in terms of the things we need as men for respect. The first one is conquest. Conquest. I, I, I have some questions as well for you ladies to help you massage and put your hands around this idea of conquest. What, are, what do you mean, Pastor Scott? My, my husband, well, how, you, how am I going to respect my husband's conquest needs, desires? Believe me, he has needs. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Ladies, learn to grasp why and how all men feel obligated and drawn to work. And don't just exercise that respect towards his conquest in your husband, but find an ability to do that in your, your sons as well. Because he also is in need of it. Some questions to think through are this. Have I made it clear to my husband that I fully support his desire to work and succeed? Have I made that clear? Do I take the time to understand and appreciate the significance of his job to him and how it contributes to his sense of identity? Am I aware of how my recognition and appreciation of his work can energize Literally, it can energize and inspire him. Even when he's at a job he does not like, you have the ability to flip the script. How it can strengthen our relationship. The second thing is hierarchy. Because husbands are called to be, to, uh, by God, to be the head of his wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. Ephesians 2, uh, 3.23 Husbands need to hear your gratitude for his willingness to protect, provide, and even die for you. He needs to hear that. And so here's some questions that you can mull through this. Do I express my respect and appreciation for my husband's sense of responsibility towards me? Or do I resent the biblical concept of the husband's headship? 
feeling that he views it as a right over me rather than a responsibility for me? Am I willing to express my gratitude to my husband by sending him a card or a note to show him how much I respect him? Or what would I say to thank him for his commitment to taking care of me? The third thing is authority. Because scripture tells wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives need to place themselves under his protection and provision. And when stalemates arise, they need to let him know that they're willing to defer. That they're willing to defer to his decisions and trust God to guide him. That is not an easy thing to do. That's why you need Christ to help you. And so some questions we might ask to understand um, how to respect his authority need is do I acknowledge my husband's primaries, uh, primary authority in our family because of his responsibility to protect and provide for me? Or do I push for an egalitarian um, marriage where we have equal authority, but I still expect him to be the primary responsibility? Do I allow my husband to be the leader, or do I take the lead because, frankly, I'm better at a lot of things than he is? And that may be true. Am I on record with my husband? And because he has 51% of the responsibility to die for me, he has 51% of, this, of, the, of the authority. The fourth one is insight. Because the Bible teaches that, that it was Eve who was deceived, wives should be very aware. There will be moments when they are misled by their feelings and want to ignore their husband's counsel. We know this because 1 Timothy 2.14 says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so some questions we might ask are, do I tend to turn, him, uh, do I tend to, turn, him, turn to him for his opinions and analysis, or do I tend to depend more on my, situ, uh, my intuition? Do I realize that we are a team and that our marriage needs my intuition and his insight? Because it does. Do I sometimes try to be my husband's Holy Spirit? Because that's true. Why? Because we know the Holy Spirit wants the best for our husband, and so do we. So do we. But we break the protocol of God's word. We break the principle of God's word. And when we step outside the bounds of God's word, we step outside the alignment of his word. And any time we do that, we... we, we we burden the entire responsibility of completely fulfilling all the things that God has asked of our husband, and that is not possible. And so he asks us to abide in him and remain in him. And the last thing is the band comes back up, worship team comes back up. It's because a husband should have, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I passed relationship. Because the Bible clearly speaks of how a wife should be her husband's friend as well as her Lover, wives should recognize the value of just being with him. Uh, Song of Solomon, which is a great book to read. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend. You can have no friends in life, but if your husband is your friend, that's really all the friends that you possibly might need. Do we do things together as friends and companions? Do I ever just sit with him to watch a ball game or a TV program or I don't know, whatever you do? Because I understand his desire for me is to be with him. This is true. Do I ever just sit and watch him work on something without having to talk? 
the last thing is, is sexual. He has a, a sexual respect that he needs from you. Because a husband should only have eyes for his wife. A wife blesses her husband when she understands his vulnerabilities. And that is an understatement of a word, vulnerabilities. And meets his sexual needs. Proverbs 5, 15-19 says this. Drink to the husbands. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should, you, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated. Lose who you normally are in her love. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. That you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. The subject is sex. And so the questions are, do I understand that my husband's need for sex is really an indication of his deeper need for respect? Do I understand that? Do I sometimes deprive my husband of sex because I don't know, I don't feel he meets my need for intimacy and love? Am I willing to give my husband the sexual release he needs even when I'm not in the mood? You think, Pastor Scott, you're walking on some thin ice today. But you know what? I'm not. I'm not. Because my heart is this, is that as much as I want that man to love you and for him to put himself aside and to sacrifice everything to serve you and make sure that your submission becomes the mission, I expect him to walk in that. He's the man of God. He should do that. If he submits to God, he will do that. But I also want him to be rewarded for being the husband God's called him to be by you wives being the wife that God has called you to be. I don't think that we can minimize these roles. I don't think we can minimize the necessity and the essentialness of the things God has called us to do. I don't think we can minimize at all. These are serious, serious matters. And if it's not true to you, realize that your culture and realize how important this is because this is farce to the world. They would never embrace this. But you are not of the world. That is not your culture and this is not your home. And so, men, you are to live in such a way that points to your heavenly Father. And women, you are to help him live that way so that your marriage will reflect not just a relationship between Christ and the church, but a Godhead that stands supreme and sovereign over all. That's what your marriage implication is, that you are a testimony to the world as to the spiritual things that they do not see. And so what I'm thinking about this morning and talking about this morning is most severe. So here's how I want to I want to do the altar call this morning. I want to make this room an altar and here's what I want you to pray for. I, I think husbands obviously it's imperative that you pray for your wives. But I also I also want single women to pray for single women or their daughters. If you know of a single woman, you can go to her and pray for her, pray for her daughter if she has a daughter. Children, pray for your mom because she's teaching you how to be a woman of God. So pray for your mom. 
And then fathers, pray for your daughters. Pray for your daughters. Because the world does not want you to have a woman who is majestic. A daughter who is a, who is a daughter of the king. They want her to be an object, something that is less than, something that can be thrown away and trashed and, and redeemed upon man's desire and not God's word. And so pray for your wife, but pray for those babies too. Pray for your sister because they need to walk this out. The world needs to see what a real woman looks like because they've seen too much falsehood in this world. And so if you would stand with me, I'm going to ask you, find someone you can pray for. Do you have a wife nearby? Do you have a daughter nearby? Is there a single woman, ladies, that you can pray for? Is there some moms that you can pray for, children? I'll give you just a time to move. Go ahead and move right now if you want to move. You can meet in the altar, you can meet in the aisle, or you can meet in your pew. I'm going to let you start praying first, and then I'm going to join you in prayer. Matter of fact, I'm going to go pray for my family, and I'll be back to lead us. So would you begin praying?
God, we don't realize. We don't, we don't realize. The biggest need you ever saw when your creation, Lord, was, was what man lacked. And the greatest answer you provide in creation, Father, was a wife. It was the one thing, God, that Adam praised you for. Everything else he had. But the first thing that came out of his mouth, God, was praise for his wife. Oh, God, these ladies, they are a gift to us. I pray, God, you would anoint us men as fathers, husbands. Lord, teach us, Lord, how to steward the gift that is within them. God, allow us, Lord, to love them unconditionally, Father, and I pray that you would use these ladies, God. Learn, teach them, Father, they might learn how to walk according to your word, Lord, and, and how to respect the man. It's difficult to do. But, Father, I know that what you do in them, Lord, is far beyond what men can do by themselves. And, and so, Father, we need you, and we're so thankful that you chose women. You chose a wife word says that he who finds a wife finds a good, a good thing. Thank you, Lord, for taking away our not goodness and giving us a good thing. I pray your blessing, God, over the ladies here today. Let them walk in virtue. Let them walk in character. Let them walk above reproach, Lord. Let their words bless you, God. Let their beauty, God, be those things, Father, that are internal, God, and not external. Lord, let their spirit, God, be the glory, God. Let it be the thing that draws people to them, God. Let, let us see the beauty, Father, of their spirit, God. And let these temporal things pass away. I pray, God, admonish us with the character of women. Thank you for the gift that they are. We love you. We thank you, God. We ask these things today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you. Thank you for coming here today. Don't forget, uh, this Wednesday, we're starting our Wednesday night orientation class. Get out there, grab a card for Easter. Invite someone you love and someone you're loving and bring them here on Easter. I love you. You're dismissed.